0: You're listening to the Companion Gun Dog Podcast. I'm your host Grayson Geyer, and uh, I'd like to thank you for joining me today. I appreciate everyone that listens. Um, as we spoke about in the last episode, uh, beginning to make some changes to the podcast, and uh, and we're considering moving in a, a slightly more commercial direction. Um, but that being said. Uh, I want to make it really clear to everybody that I don't intend, uh, to just, um, just be producing these things for the sake of producing them to make money. Like, I don't think that works, uh, that model would not work for me. So it, if I'm going to speak on something, it's gotta be, it's gotta be interesting to me and it needs to be relevant to what I do and, and what I try to accomplish for my clients. Uh, so as always, uh, I'm going to do my best to find interesting topics and put a lot of thought and effort into them um, uh, before recording. And uh, and so again, thank you all for being here. Uh, thanks for sticking with me if you've been listening since the beginning. Um, and I'll try to to you know if if we as we move forward with this, uh, you know, with advertisers and things like that. Uh, I want you guys to know that. Um, I've got zero interest in promoting things that uh, don't necessarily align with my values, and and so uh, I'm hoping that if I get products to push, they're going to be things that I've used and that work, uh, and that's uh, that's really important to me. But you know, mostly for us, I'm thinking hunter education, uh, animal welfare, fair chase, conservation. Those are that's that's the space I want to live in, and so if uh if you hear me out here promoting anything um those are those are things i'm looking to talk to people about and uh and those are things that are important to me so just so you guys know i've joined um ONR that's the outdoor recreation network uh and that's kind of the leader of that outfit is Nick Adair uh who's become a good friend over the last couple of years and uh and i really Nick takes a very organized approach to this stuff. He cares about production quality. Uh, he cares about getting a consistent product out in a timely fashion. And so uh, that's the kind of guy I need to hitch my wagon to, to keep myself honest. So uh, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to being a part of that group. I there's, he's got Bob at lone duck and, uh, and a couple of others, but those guys are, they're, they're my buddies now. So I'm really, and, you know they're people I admire, so I'm really uh, happy to be associated with them. So that's it. I won't bore you with any more of that stuff. So today, uh, the topic at hand is drive capping, and it's a it's a term that has come up several times uh, in recent podcasts on other people's. I mentioned it on this one before. I know Bob has uh, Bob's had some some pretty uh, some pretty. Good guests that have touched on the topic, um, but today I really wanted to to dig as deep as I'm capable of digging into it, and and try to make it make sense for what we do as gun dog types. And so, you know, again, it's a uh, it's one of those colloquial terms that I don't I don't think, and and I've tried to kind of look for it, but I don't think it exists outside the context of dog training. So, and I don't know who coined the term. I wish I did. I wish I could give them credit. I know the first time I heard it was like my first trip to the Jacksonville Schutzen Club. Um, uh, and, and one of the folks that, that was helping me and mentoring me along the way, uh, you know, used the term and, Uh, And, you know, it, it went straight over my head, I'm sure at that time. And uh, I, you know, as I've grown, it's a term that I continue to use. I've used since the early days of my training career. And I have a grasp on what I mean when I say it, but I haven't really ever gone as deep as I possibly could into trying to understand it. Uh, And so like other terms that we've, discussed in other words we've discussed on this podcast i think it's most important that we start by defining it as best we can and this one is is pretty tough because it is a it's one of those it's a dog trainer's word uh you're not going to find it in uh in the in merriam-webster or anything like that so where i went um i found two two trainers that i respect deeply um that have kind of a public personas that have discussed it publicly. And I kind of found where they defined it in lectures. And the first uh, was Michael Ellis and he's discussed it publicly. There's a video through the Learberg platform that he works with uh, that's free on YouTube where he discusses drive capping and he defined it as, uh, and I've just got it in quotations, where you teach the dog to go from an active state to a capped state, interruption in an excited active state to a controlled contained state. So that's as close as I could get kind of listening to that video, um, to defining that term. So I think the, the, the important part of that is, uh, interruption in an excited active state to a controlled contained state, if that makes sense. So uh, that was Michael Ellis's definition and then uh, Jerry Bradshaw's actually written relatively extensively on the topic and I, I love his writing and um and uh and, and anytime he talks and he recently did a podcast so one of his most recent podcasts were actually tackling drive capping and and that was obviously a major resource for me so went back went listened to that uh, and then went back and reread uh, some of his slideshare. um publications and, uh, and got a lot of good information from that. So I'll link to that in the show notes. I'm going to link to his podcast episode, um, for, I would say that probably the first 10 to 15 minutes are going to be extremely relevant information to us gun dog types. It's just general dog training knowledge from there. He kind of moves a little to a little more, um, directed info, uh, at the, uh, protection police dog type crowd uh and and you know and this is honestly i've just recently heard the term used in in uh reference to gun dogs you know in the last couple of years since there's been this crossover in this flow of information podcast social networks uh things of that nature um you know it, it was a term that i don't think I don't think many had ever heard prior to a couple of years ago in the gun dog world, but it has been used extensively for decades um, in the uh, in the protection sport game, and and so those guys think about it a lot, and they think about how they can use drive capping to their advantage in training, and so like other things, like other kind of two dollar words we've tossed around, it you know knowing it, it's not a method, it's not something that um, it, that it's it's a phrase that understanding it can help us better train, if that makes sense. And I guess to some extent, you could say it may become a method once you gain a mastery of it. But it's using it with intent to your advantage. That's important. And and uh, and so I'll get into that a little bit later. But Jerry defines it, um, it, it. This is the process of teaching the dog to compose himself, and restrain or internalize. Uh, in apostrophes not express his drive temporarily uh, and that's what he calls drive capping so internalizing not expressing drive so it and in, if you go back to Michael Ellis's definition, it's going from an excited expressive state to now internalizing that drive so imagine we have a dog and and we do this like, so if you're, especially if you're into retrievers and you're training for, I would say even the junior level, uh, you know, steadiness is a cap state. So if you're watching Mark's fall, if your dog's watching Mark's fall and he's restraining himself from running towards that Mark, the running towards that Mark is an expressive state. Um, the sitting there intensely waiting for a release is a cap state. And so we are already doing it. Um, If uh, I would say that pointing and a pointing dog is a cap state. And uh, if you've got a flushing dog, that's helping to flush and then steady through, through the sequence after that, that's a cap state. So all of us that are training our dogs to any level of steadiness, regardless of the type of hunting and the type of dog we have, we're already employing drive capping. Um, it goes on, you know, The I think mostly with the protection sports guys, the expressive state that they're looking for would be a bark and hold for the most part, or just restraining themselves from self-release to the, to a decoy or a helper on the field. Um, you know, so I think there's application for this depending on the dog and depending on the situation for like maybe dogs that vocalize at the line and things like that. We talk about denials a lot and, and jerry draws a distinction between drive suppression and drive capping and i think there's times where we may need to suppress drive if we have a dog um that's expressing through vocalization but that's getting a little bit of ahead of myself let me run back to to michael ellis's video and just things i took away from that um when we're employing drive capping uh ellis states that behaviors tend to get more intense um for competitive trainers, for trainers that are training for competition, this is a good thing. we want that show. We intensity is an important thing to have if our, we're asking complex tasks of our dogs that are uh, that require you know a uh, high level of physicality. Um, it may not be as important to your person on the street. Right. So uh, but I think and he and he goes on to say that he does believe that it still has value on the street uh, due to a better chance of control in higher states of arousal. Uh, So if you're just talking about your pet dog that maybe um, gets excited uh, in certain contexts, maybe, you know, squirrels, rabbits, they come into prey drive. Uh, How do we teach that dog to internalize that drive, control that drive, and maybe we give them another outlet uh, to express that drive? um redirecting from from that specific target. Uh so that's something to consider there. Uh and then, you know, Ellis he's done a lot with toy play and in his instructionals. And and I think he's a real master of toy play. And one thing that is really uncommon for us in gun dogs, that's very common, especially in bite dogs, but also like competitive obedience, uh, is games of tug. And and that's a big no no for many people in in our gun dog space, whether we're talking retrievers, whether we're talking flushers or uh or pointing dogs, if we're expecting them to retrieve, because we're we're dealing in possession at this point. And if for a dog to play tug, they've got to have they've got to enjoy possessing the item. Then we're also getting it into a uh, we're triggering um kind of a state of live prey of our toy. So when you're engaging me with a toy and I'm tugging you the prey is alive, and it's interacting with you and me, right, at the same time. And and something you'll see Ellis do to teach his outs is kill prey. So he just holds it really still. He doesn't allow for that interaction or engagement. The dog, if you've ever seen a dog pick up a toy or a duck or whatever and shake it, think of a terrier here, uh, it's, it's kind of um, theorized that that's the dog essentially trying to re-engage the prey as as live game, as live prey, right? It's like, it was fun when you were interacting with me. It was fun when the prey was kicking and shaking and chasing. And now by doing this, uh, you know, head thrashing and things like that, I'm trying to get back to that state that I enjoyed so much, that interaction. And dead prey is much less fun some will still want to possess that and, and and that can be problematic for us if we want them to come give it to us and and that gets a lot more into kind of natural retrieve building behaviors but at the end of the day if you watch Michael Ellis play a game of tug with his dog and teach uh and begin use it to teach obedience it's it's really a thing of beauty and and it's built around tug and so he'll often teach his retrieve um, you know, he, and he goes on, he does say, and I've kind of lost my screen here. So let me bring it back. Uh, that in order to, to, for toy play and to get capping through toy play, drive capping through toy play and to use it to your advantage, we need, uh, three fundamental rules for that toy play. And one is the dog must want the toy and the interaction, So if the dog doesn't enjoy the toy, they don't enjoy the interaction, it doesn't have enough value for us to use it and harness it to our advantage. Um, They must have an out. They must release when I ask them to. And so again, he teaches that release in that toy play by killing prey and the dog releases, let's go. And then he rewards the out by re-engaging the dog and he'll just quickly move jerk the toy, let the dog release to the toy and then engage in a in a vigorous game of tug again. And that's what's re- rewarding to the dog. That's the the satisfying uh part of that sequence to the dog. And then uh the third thing is that they must bring it back to me. And so I when before I was deep into gun dogs, you know, and that was more of a casual pursuit for me, but I was really deep into uh protection sport and and kind of more high level obedience stuff, uh, I really looked to Ellis a lot and I uh, emulated his, his training style in that regard with toy play. So we used use tugs and just essentially be a bumper um, like a fire hose bumper. That was maybe a little softer, usually made out of what we call French linen. And uh, it was satisfying to chew, to, to bite. It was pretty tough. So the dog wasn't going to eat it up. We didn't let the dog just go chew on it in the corner by himself. The, it was only appropriate to engage that thing when you were engaging us. And so I might have it in my hands and then quickly animate it, trigger your prey drive. You go in there and grab it. Then I play a little tug with you. Then I kill it. Then you let go. Then you sit in a cap state with intensity, looking at it, waiting for it to come back to life. And boom, I release to it again by reanimating it. And I might put that to a mark. Yes. Boom. I I let the dog reanimate. Comes back. I let go of the thing. He runs off with it, gets to possess it and feel free. And then I reengage, you know, non-verbally by Kind of backing up and playing, or I have a recall put to it, and the dog comes back. And what I want is that dog pushing it back into me. Hey, play with me again. Bring this thing back to life. That was that's a very very powerful way to use a toy, and this could be a ball or a tug, to um uh to get our dog to manipulate our dog's behavior in order to get what they want out of it. And so the highest value in that tug is when you're engaging me over it. Um, and I think for our retrievers, the highest value that say a bumper can have is that moment that it's it's animated in hitting the water hitting the ground and it's triggered that prey now a dog that begins to understand they're waiting on release if that's that cap state and having them wait can sometimes times intensify their desire to go after it um but we're we're capturing that moment where prey has been triggered and then the release to that item is essentially for our retrievers the what we're looking for is our high state of value you know the moment they put their mouth on that thing and they've got possession of it and now especially for us that are have gone through a more of like a traditional american rex car type of force program Now they're bringing it back to us. There's some discipline to that. Now we can still keep them in a high state of drive, especially when we've taught multiple marks and they come back and they get by our side and they're already thinking about the next retrieve. They're thinking about the run, the chase out there to go pick that thing up. But the possession is not nearly as valuable as it is uh, in the engagement because we're not playing tug and that's fine. And we don't need to, I am of the opinion that, and I don't, recommend this to everybody else but I'm very comfortable playing tug with my own puppies Uh, I'm going to put you through a force program as well and we're going to teach you what manners are uh, around, around fetching and delivery and things like that. And I, I don't need you to come back to me and be looking to engage me in a game of tug. Every time you bring that thing back, especially my duck that I don't want torn up, but I, you know, personally am very comfortable taking a tug and playing with my retriever puppies. And I like developing possession in that way. And I find that valuable. It's a double edged sword. If you're not comfortable molding that back into a clean delivery later, it, it could certainly become a, uh, a catalyst for unwanted behaviors. So bear that in mind. So if I talk about, you know, don't be afraid to play tug with your puppy, don't be afraid to play tug with your puppy as long as you're willing uh, to overcome the uh, the problematic behaviors you may um, have reinforced through that process. Uh, so that kind of took that down a bit of a rabbit hole, but hopefully that makes sense to everybody. Uh, but the key is it's great for learning self-control teaching a dog to cap and to exist in a cap state is great for teaching them not to express on their own we don't want our retrievers breaking we don't want them breaking if we're going to take them to hunt test and expect to pass and we don't want them breaking um in the duck blind and and you know creating potentially unsafe scenarios where they're out in the decoys and ducks are flying in or f- making ducks flare because they're out there swimming around in our decoys, right? We need them to wait until we allow them to go pick those ducks up. And when, as they watch them fall out of the sky and they hear those guns fire, um, uh, which they have associated with birds falling out of the sky, that's ramping that drive up and, and having to bottle that up and keep that inside, internalize it and not express it by self-releasing and jumping out there in the decoys can really amplify the intensity. Uh, and, and so, you know, at some point we've got to learn how to manage that intensity if it becomes too much, because it can boil over. And that's something Jerry gets into, um, you know, he go he goes on after he defines drive capping in, in his slide share. Uh, to state that drive capping a high drive dog can seem at first like a lot trying to put the genie back in the bottle. Um, In drive capping, the dog is taught that by doing the obedience command and internalizing his outward expression of drive, he will receive the prey object as a reward. So it kind of gets back to what we were talking about in that game of tug. But for, for us you know, oftentimes we're, all we're asking is just to sit there and continue to get pumped up and drive. And I think this is something that, and I've heard others, especially on retriever uh, oriented podcasts, start to discuss some of this, um, building a sequence around steadiness and release that could be obedience. And, and, um, and we'll move into that. I do want to talk about go further, kind of finish what Jerry had to say. He talks a lot about potential energy versus kinetic energy. And so kin- kinetic energy being the express state, right? So if we think of the pot of boiling water analogy, uh, and we get, we have a pressure cooker, um, if we're capping drive, We're building pressure and we haven't released it. If that boils over or we have a safety valve or something that releases uh, that potential energy of that cap state turns into kinetic energy and that could be breaking. That could be in a protection sport scenario, uh, a dog biting a decoy when they're not supposed to be, when they're supposed to be performing an obedience behavior or something like that. So um, uh, oftentimes, though, if and this is where something that's really pertinent to us can come into play. Uh, If we have dogs that vocalize, um, this is an expression of drive. So if they're sitting there and it's too much to wait and they begin to whine or bark or scream, this is that bleeding off of drive. This is that pressure relief valve. They've got all this energy inside them and they got to put it somewhere. And there are some dogs that can overcome this and we can help them overcome that through structured play with the use of drive capping and there are some dogs that that becomes a habitual way of dealing with the, the, the anxiety, uh, if you will, of having to internalize drive, which can be, it can cause high levels of stress and, you know, and just that they've got to have an an outlet. And so they vocalize. And so, some dogs are, are never going to get past that and some, some can. So that's something we can use it for. And so that kind of brings me around to where like the, why is this important to us? What can we do about it? How can we use it now that we understand what drive capping is? It is going from a state of, of expressed drive to a state of internalized drive It's not running. It's watching marks fall, sitting there with intensity and waiting to be released. What can we do if we have a problematic breaker? Uh, What can we do, hopefully, with maybe a dog that can't control their vocalizations because they're bleeding off that drive? Um, We know about denials. We've talked about suppression a little bit uh, as opposed to capping. So suppression would be you know, I, I have a dog that's expressing drive, it's problematic, and I'm not going to allow when they're expressing that drive, I'm never going to allow for that to be satisfied. Um, and so we see this a lot. When, in uh, Think denials for retrievers, right? You, you get a mark, the dog begins to scream, maybe he creeps way out in front, and we just go, nope, you're not getting that retrieved, go put you back in the truck. Um, or nope, we're gonna give you a heavy correction, and maybe like make you honor something. I don't know. There, in any number. uh, I and this is a place. If you've heard of English honors, I I do like English honors. Um, and this is, I don't know that this is drive suppression or capping, but it, it definitely toes the line. But you have two or more dogs out online. Um, could be live game, could be dummies being thrown as marks. But the dog that acts the most appropriate is the dog that gets sent. If a dog's acting inappropriately, he may just be required to sit there or he may be required to heal away and perform an obedience routine with a little more uh, compulsive um, direction from the handler. Uh, But at the end of the day, you don't get the retrieve unless you're acting appropriately at the line. And so you might have an opportunity to redeem yourself in time it may not be when you're quite isn't in in as high a state of drive uh, because we've suppressed some of that. And so for us, there may be times where we need to suppress drive as opposed to just cap it because often um, often we are uh, – pardon me um, – by through our capping creating so much intensity that we end up with that bleeding off effect and it's working against us, if that makes sense. So I had to kind of gather my thoughts there. Thanks for being patient with me. But we we want to be very careful that through capping we're not actually having this, this kind of uh, – opposition or barrier to expression of drive which creates just uncontrol like the inability to remain in that cap state there's there's kind of an art to teaching a dog to cap drive and then maintain that cap state without blowing your top if that makes sense uh, so so thinking of it in those terms and that goes for a pointing dog on point that's learning how to get, be steady through um, wing shot and fall sequence. Uh, it's it's pertinent to the flusher that flushes is hopping to the flush automatically and going through his steady to wing shot and fall sequence as well. You know where the the potential we want this dog to anticipate a retrieve sometimes unless we're dealing straight d- just with pointing dogs that uh, that we will not expect to retrieve. And I think we're dealing in something a little different there that would be interesting to touch on. But it's interesting that. You know, you think of these pointers and setters and and other dogs that are dealing that are running stakes, where they're never they're non retrieving stakes, and and there are plenty of dogs out there that never have the opportunity to finish that sequence by putting a bird in their mouth, uh, and possessing it, <coughs> that are not only functional but at the highest level functional as a bird dog they're going to go out there and find every bird uh, that they can get in their nose and point it for you until you come put the bird to wing and fire a shot. And then they're going to either be dragged away or heal away or do whatever and move on to the next bird. And that sequence there is satisfying enough to that dog to continue to want to repeat it indefinitely. And that's <coughs> that requires uh, a high drive dog um, that doesn't that's high enough drive that it never gets to finish the sequence and satisfy. And so that's important to note, but again, kind of getting on to how is this important to us? To me, if we're going to use drive capping to our advantage, (coughs) pardon me, goodness gracious. If we're going to use drive capping to our advantage, then the, the most effective way to do that, and really probably the only way to do that, is to pair it uh, with pre-max principle. Um, and we've defined that on this podcast before probably multiple times. Um, but it's essentially when a dog performs a... Uh, behavior of low probability in order to perform a behavior of high probability. And so nothing's more high probability for a retriever than to run out and put, put a bumper or, or a duck in its mouth, right? And so the behavior we ask them to perform prior to that is coming and healing by our side um, and, and waiting patiently. And so they're much more likely to do that. And if you've ever watched higher level retriever trainers with their dogs, you start to see like the dogs, man, they can do some very snappy healing when the uh, the potential for a retrieve exists. And and I, I my head immediately goes to, say, a dog running a master, a dog in a field trial that is returning with their bird from one mark. And as they're returning to deliver that bird, they may turn around 15, 20 feet, yards, who knows, I've seen it at, at pretty extreme distances, and back into heel so they can face forward to the field again, right? And they're backing in super clean. It's a really neat behavior to watch. Um, so this dog's coming full tilt boogie back to the handler, 15, 20 feet out in front of the handler. He actually spins faces, it points his rear at the handler and backs all the way into heel and in a very clean, nice heel delivers the bird to the handler and sits and waits to be released to that next one. That's... Sequence that release to that next bird is reinforcing that behavior that they're performing as they come back into heel because that's where they need to be. We can take this a step farther, and something I do, you know, especially with gun dogs, um, that are maybe having a little bit of trouble breaking, expressing uh, as marks are dropping, and say they're creeping or they're breaking or doing whatever. I like to use a place board for this when I'm starting out. And this is, again, this is gun dog work. You know, it may run contrary to some things you're doing already. um, But oftentimes, I'll step away from that dog, teach them to to stay in a static position on that place board. And then I can work them remotely. I may go out in front and throw a mark or shoot a dummy launcher uh, or do any number of things. You still have to be steady on that board. That's your position to remain at. Um, i come back and i may step 10 feet out behind you and if you're if you're thinking forward and you're still considering breaking forward and you're just on the edge and i'm saying you as the dog just on the edge waiting for your name to be called to be released to that mark instead of doing that i may say here heal and i may require that instead of releasing you forward you actually have to come perform an obedience behavior back to heal you may get into heal and I'm satisfied that you perform that behavior sufficiently and I release you on your name at that point and send you to the mark. But now what I've done effectively is taking your anticipation of moving in one direction away and, and introducing the fact that you may have to move in the opposite direction that you're being pulled towards uh, for your release. And if I can get a dog to remain intense Keep the field, in the words of, of my mentor Bob Messina, keep the field tilted downhill so that you're thinking forward, but you're not anticipating directly being released there. There's the potential that I may call you away from that. Now you're much less likely to act on your own. And especially if you act on your own, you can pretty much figure that you're going to be required to perform other behaviors before you're released to that. And and so this is this is where we can... Um, counteract that anticipation that leads to breaking, the anticipation of the release. We don't want to take it away to the point where the field is no longer tilted downhill, if that makes sense. I want the suction into the field, but I also want you thinking that you need to, that everything comes through me. That doesn't necessarily mean you need to, Automatically heal, and you'll see dogs begin to do that after doing this a bit, where they're anticipating the heel. So instead of breaking forward, they actually break to the rear into heel position. So you have to be aware of that and not uh, and and not reinforce it to the point that the do- that becomes an automatic behavior, and we don't want that. And we may put something else in the sequence. Oftentimes, I'll call you to heel then I'll send you back to the placeboard and then I'll release you. Or I may take a little bit of a walk with you, depending on your level of how quite, how crazy and expressive you are in, in that moment. Um, and then bring you back, let you look downfield and then release you. And, and so for me personally, that's one way I uh, uh, employ pre-Mac and drive capping in order to keep my dog steady. So what I'm not doing is hammering you, for breaking, um, which can lead to other problems. Not only we may, we suppress drive un, unintentionally. We may make that, that particular context. If you're up there creeping and breaking, or you're on point, the bird's flown and you can't stop creeping towards that bird, or you can't, you're, you're breaking and self-releasing to the retrieve. Um, and then I step out behind and recall you to heal, uh, After you've done that, you're, you're, I've taken the anticipation that leads to the breaking away. If you take that creep and I just hammer you with the e-collar or, or the check cord or whatever it may be, I may create an association between that moment and pain that I don't want to put in there. And I may soften my dog up. I may, you know, create, uh, the anticipation of a big correction, um, that I don't want. I want to keep that pretty picture. I want that dog forward. I want him stylish. I want him confident. And I think we can achieve this much better by giving the dog options uh, and sequences of behaviors that they can use to earn their release as opposed to employing high level correction in there. Uh, and and I'm not opposed to, depending on what I need to do, if I'm, if I'm trying to recall you to heel and you're not thinking heel at all, you're thinking forward as opposed to finding me and getting into position, um, that's an opportunity for me to negatively reinforce heel and take some of the pressure off punishing the creep or the, the, the break or whatever it may be. Um, and so I'm not, this might be something a retriever. This is not what you would think of in this context, but you might consider this indirect pressure. So, by negatively reinforcing you to heal, I'm effectively punishing the creep without addressing that exact thing in that moment that could lead to problematic stress, if that makes sense. So uh, I don't know, I, I'm not super satisfied with that explanation, but I think it's that's an important part of it. Um, so if we think of building our sequence, so if we're thinking of our retriever, Uh, I leave you on the placeboard. Mark hits the water. You're really excited. You're thinking forward. You may be getting happy feet. You may step off the board. You may vocalize a little bit. I recall you to heal. Boom, I release. I do that over and over and over again. I can expect you to anticipate coming to heal and then being released. So I want to make sure every once in a while I'm releasing you forward. And so hopefully you're acting appropriately on occasion. And I can release you directly from the placeboard. I wanna do that when you're at heel and there's no placeboard involved. I wanna do that when I'm standing next to the placeboard. I wanna do it sometimes when I'm not standing near the placeboard and release you remotely from some other location. I may, and you see this a lot in the protection sports, I may step out of heel and leave you in position and then step back into heel and step back out of heel and then step back into heel. And especially if you know on test day, and we know through the course of reps that the heel position, the context of being in heel position, um is the picture you're most likely to see your release from. Just stepping out can have the effect of interrupting the expression of drive. Like if I'm over here, I'm not gonna send you. And so there's you know hopefully less reason for you to be in a super heightened state of drive. If I need to take a little of the edge off, uh, for me personally, I'm going to randomize all of it. So you never know exactly what's going to be asked of you, what the spatially where you may end up with me. Um, or if you're just going to become be directly released. And the idea is, Hey, just don't anticipate anything. Wait for me, wait on your release Wait to maybe have to perform another sequence of behaviors, and then in in doing this, you're you're harnessing this premack to work on your obedience. So you can actually develop precision and obedience with this as well. And dogs that get accustomed to this get can can really earn gain some flashy obedience um, by uh, understanding that the reinforcer is is you know a clean heel away or a clean heel and step off and walk a few paces with me away or a clean heel and whoa or sit in motion away. Uh, and, and so we can, we can harness all of that drive that that dog's feeling in that moment and put it into creating precise, snappy, flashy obedience. And, uh, and, and the protection sports guys are absolute masters of that. If you go, you know, just Google and watch a YouTube video, uh, of a, a high level, you know, say, just Google Schutzen or IGP, um, you know, world championship and watch some of their obedience routines. These guys, this is a major part of how they're developing that obedience and training. Um, So something that we can take from that world and use to our advantage. In flushers, I've stated it before, things that we may do. Uh, to to use pre-mac and drive capping to our advantage with our flushers, you'll you'll see it a lot. You watch the higher level guys with the cockers; um, it's very common. I think uh, I first saw Ian Openshaw using place boards, um, but it may he may I'm sure he got that from somewhere else. Uh, the Cato boards and Jordan Horak um, certainly popularizing this for that world as well. You see that quite often, but. Uh, I may put you send you to your placeboard. board you go enthusiastically because you know you're starting your game by heading there and then I may have multiple placeboards in play you move from one to the next I may throw your mark uh, and then you may still have to continue working through your sequence before your release but you're working for your release and you're working for me to even engage you in that play in the first place so. That translates extremely well. If that becomes habit and working in that way and thinking I need to come through my handler in order to get, earn my release and there's positions I may need to be in. And, and the reason we use the placeboard board for this and what I like about it is there's a clear delineation between wrong and right. If I leave you just on the ground, you may have a wonderful heel and you may have, offer a wonderful static position, but it gives me the opportunity as the handler and trainer to focus a little bit on throwing a ball or shooting a bumper launcher. Or pushing buttons, and then I look over at you, and you're you've got a foot off of that board. I'm, i you know, it's it's much more obvious, and so and it's also much easier for the dog to be corrected back onto to that position, and it makes sense than to go back to a p- place in space time that they they may have already forgotten, if that makes sense. And so it, it holds up in our pointers, and you and see a lot more folks using place boards in the training of pointers these days. It's tougher because, our, you know, we're just covering ground in a different way. There's a less static work in the way I do the training. Um, and so I don't employ, uh, employ the placeboard as much, but I definitely am using drive capping and pre-mac. And, and I've ha- shown examples of that through videos before. Uh, Wayne, who I'm taking to the Invitational this year, that was a major part of his steadiness training, was, you know, I'm going to shoot you this bird, but you take a step and you're not going to get released to a retrieve. You're probably going to get called back to heal, and if you do that crisply, you may re-earn your ability to retrieve again, uh, and so that's it, it's it, it definitely a uh, a viable way to get a dog to stop thinking forward and to just think stay and wait for a release or stay and wait for the next step in the sequence. Um, I think I think I got out of my brain what I was trying to get out of it. So hopefully that makes sense to everybody. Hopefully it was coherent. Uh, as always, you know, give me feedback. If there's anything um, about this episode that you'd like me to clear up, maybe I can work that into uh, into an intro on another episode. If you got questions, shoot them to me. If you have topics for future podcasts, uh, please let me know. But, you know, I appreciate you guys being here. Um, it keeps it keeps it really fresh for me. I, I I really enjoy doing this and I'm enjoying it more and more now. And I'm looking to the future and I really, you know, hope that I can, um, offer people value in terms of instruction. That's, that's where I want to take my career in, the, you know, in the next step, in the next phase for me. Uh, I love training dogs. I'm never going to stop. I would love to focus more on, you know, training playing games and titling my own dogs, um, and, and taking fewer client dogs and giving them more of myself, if that makes sense. And so that's, that's the aim. That's where we're moving. So if you, again, if you have topics for a future podcast, let me know if you have feedback on these, uh, please, please reach out. Um, and, and again, you know, if you get something out of this podcast, if you like it, if you think it's worth listening to, please do me a favor and share it. Share it on social media. Uh, give me a five star review. Um, you know, let folks know about it and 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 write write some words about what you think you get out of this thing on your Apple i i or podcast account there. So until um, next time, guys. Thanks for being here.